0: Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us uh, right now is Mark. Mark was a client of Sands & Associates. He recently chose to file a uh, consumer proposal to deal with his debt situation, Mark, I can't tell you how happy we are that you've been able to take some time and talk to us, and, and uh, it's just so good for other folks to hear what other people go through, uh, because things resonate, and then they go, okay, this guy did it, maybe I can, or, or gives me some food for thought to take some action, so thank you very much. You're welcome. Great. So uh, I guess the first thing we want to hear about is uh, the situation that brought you, that got you in the door at Sands & Associates.
1: Well, what happened was I had a couple of long layoffs over the last three years, and living in Metro Vancouver isn't exactly cheap. Mm -hmm. So you put those two things together, and as much as I tried to stay ahead, I just couldn't and after a while the spiral began and you're just getting further and further behind. So um, yeah, that's pretty much what happened.
2: And how long were you laid off for? Mark the, the first and the second time.
1: Uh, first time was about nine months and the second time was about eleven months.
0: That's oh, a, those are wow. very long periods of time. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, I'd just like to point out this uh, before you continue on, is that this is the kind of situation that you, that Sands and Associates mm-hmm. runs into. This is of no fault of your own, right, Mark? I mean, layoff is a layoff, and you don't have any control over that.
1: That's that's right. You you don't, and your your budgets are you know you're doing okay and everything when you're working, but as soon as you lose that income, and now you're relying on EI. Um, or some other form of, you know, savings or something that you might have when you're relying on something that turns out to be, you know, less than half of what you had, um, you, you, there's just no way. You just can't keep up.
2: Yeah, and Mark, we talk a lot on the on this show about you know how you can kind of protect yourself a little bit as to have an emergency fund, and the emergency fund we talk about is often six months of expenses. And yeah, that that would help, but you know, you went through twenty months of of a layoff here, so yeah, I think it's it's no surprise here. Not putting words in your mouth, but was it you started to have to use credit to just you know pay for some living expenses as the layoffs continued? Is that what
0: happened?
1: Yes, that's yeah, it's uh, just more and more credit, and things just just happened that to just keep going, you get into that spiral of, okay, how am I going to pay for this? Well, we're going we're gonna to do it this way this month and this way next month and next month, and it just keeps going.
0: How long did it take you, Mark, before you realized that you were in the situation you were in and that you needed to ask for some help and get some help with it?
1: I tried dealing with it on my own for about a year and a half. Um, I downsized my vehicle. I down I cut my insurance coverage. I moved to a cheaper place. Um, uh, cut down on my food bill as much as I could. I cut everywhere, um, just trying to keep the the head above water type thing.
2: And Mark, did you have any debt before you were you were laid off, or was it suddenly that you really started to go into debt once the income got hit?
1: I was able to keep up with everything at that I had student loan debt and mm-hmm. and uh and um stuff like that that I was keeping ahead of. but when you lose your you know half your income like that it it kind of you gotta you gotta start cutting somewhere and you just end up going behind and, and you make the phone call, can I pay this one next month? Can okay, Will you let me do this much this month and this much? And it's just back and forth, back and forth, and eventually you're just so far behind
2: yeah and Mark, I wanted to understand that a, a little bit because I know you know i've i obviously was not the first person you called to try to fix this this problem. you know first, you tried to deal directly with the creditors, as you were just saying. What was that like? Did you find that they were receptive to working with you? Was that you know the right thing to do for a period of time? Was there any good coming out of that <laughs>
1: funny you should ask. There was absolutely no good coming out of that.
2: Oh, really? Um, okay.
1: In fact, one of them even told me that I should buy a tent and then use my rent money to pay my bills.
2: That's wow. Compassionate. Eh?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Un- exactly. Unbelievable.
2: Because, hmm, yeah, I, I hear it from a lot of clients that, you know, the first thing we say is, well, talk to your creditors. You know, if you owe one person money and you can't pay them this month, maybe they'll allow you to, you know, pay next month or a lower interest rate. But what I hear again and again is, you know, usually it's that you need more credit because if you need more credit, we can maybe help you. But beyond that, there's not a lot of help directly from creditors. It sounds Yeah, like
1: that the, the, only, the only one that was really willing to make any um, concessions was actually the federal government student loan. Okay. Um otherwise nobody else was even willing to to talk about any other ideas.
2: And what were they willing to do? Was it in- interest freeze or, you know, suspend payments for a while?
1: Uh suspend payments for a while and then start with you know fairly low payments um after that. So oh. it was um uh, they they were they were quite compassionate compared to just about everybody else.
0: Right. So you made the decision to ask for some help, and you ended up going to Sands and Associates. Uh, what about the whole consumer proposal? That's what you ended up doing. But had you even heard about a consumer proposal before that?
1: I had, um, but i I was hoping that i I was hoping that I wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I'd. Um, you know, when I sat down and and I'd heard the ads for Sands and Associates before, and once I started to think about it, that yes, okay, maybe this is what I need to do.
0: And how was your overall experience from the from the start?
1: It's so easy, so exceptionally easy, and and overall really quick, like a matter of two or three weeks, and uh, we had things on track and fixed.
2: That's great, Mark. And, and I know I, I'm happy you're on the show because you and I dealt um, directly at, at every step here. So I wonder just to give our listeners a little bit of a sense of what, what people go through. So, you know, the first meeting you, you walked in the door, you hadn't met me before. Um, can you give me your sense of, you know, that meeting? What were you expecting and, and what actually happened there?
1: Well, I, the first thing I noticed, Blair, was there was no judgment mm-hmm. as to how, how I ended up in your office. Um, You were just, you just wanted to help and it didn't matter how I got there. Um, You just wanted to help. And that was really the, like, wow. That was a wow moment. Okay. And, you know, that, uh, that kind of built the trust right there. And, uh, you know, once we, once we went through the solutions, it was, you know, it was easy to accept.
0: And what was the end result, Mark, in terms of what did you what did you come out with after you guys figured out what you could pay and and uh, and how to move forward? How did all that go?
1: Uh, really well um, i'm I don't remember exactly what the the percentage in in total debt reduction was. Blair may remember that, but I know there was a significant reduction and um, and the payments are something that I can easily handle right now. So uh, it was a really good process. I really enjoyed actually working with Blair.
0: And it must feel pretty terrific.
1: It feels great. Um, for the first time in a long time, I'm, you know, not worried about, um, not worried about uh, you know, which one am I going to have to pay this month or not pay this month, and how much am I going to pay that one, and not going to have to figure it out. It's just like, I pay once and, and it's done. It's easy. It's, it's so easy.
0: Would you? Can you talk a little bit about your experience and, and the impact that, it, that this process has had on your financial habits or how you think about money or how you think about debt? Have, have any of those shifted?
1: Well, I'm not definitely not using credit as much as I was, um using you know much much less and that first counseling session was really good um uh talking with blair's associate there for the first time was a couple of eye openers there so um just watching things better staying you know making sure that i don't get behind or anything like that
0: and can you talk a little bit more about the things that really your eyes were open to for the first time
1: How easy, um, how easy it is to get into that situation. Like you'd be surprised, one paycheck away from being there, right? And then how, uh, just how easy it is to get get behind and things like that. It's, um, but it can happen to anybody
2: yeah I, th- I think your, your words are are just so on on point mark, and that um, you know as Elaine said earlier, you were doing everything right and suddenly you got laid off and you know most folks would be in the same situation, twenty months of reduced income or no income um, you know if you weren't in debt before then you're going to be in in debt after um, so I think it's really impressive to just hear um, that you've been able to go through the consumer proposal and you know maintain a very positive attitude. I can just hear it coming through that you know you got optimism as, as you move forward. Um I wonder mark what would you uh what words of advice would you give to somebody who might be facing a similar situation because I know some people are so self critical and they think reaching out to a trustee you know it's an admission of failure and um and you know I know it's completely not that, but I think hearing it from someone who's been through it can, can mean a lot
1: yeah, um, don't wait <laughs> um, the first sign of trouble you need to talk to blair um <laughs> Go talk to Blair and his team and, and at least see the options. Do not wait. Uh, the longer you wait, the, the worse it can get, and then you're in real trouble.
0: And we've got a couple of uh, minutes left in this segment, and, and Blair, Mark's words mm-hmm. certainly aren't new to you. You hear this from folks who have come and sat down in front of you and laid out mm-hmm. their situation.
2: Yeah and you know I hear a lot of the fears that that people have and and Mark I was so um you know if you could see me you just see you know chest popped up with pride when you said the first thing you felt was no judgment because uh, that's exactly what we try to do at at Sands and Associates and I might have said this to you and if not I hope you feel it but I know I could be in the same situation you know we're all just you know one job loss away or one medical condition away or one relationship breakdown away from having to seek help for our debts so I think the more that people are hearing this and realizing that you know you getting help it doesn't mean that you're feeling judged. This is the time when you can actually start to move forward. Um, I'm curious, Mark, as you, say, you said a bunch of times, and I really believe it, that it's been a very easy process. What was the hardest part of it? Because um, I hear different things from different clients. Sometimes it's getting, you know, being forced to become organized and get taxes caught up and different things like that. What did you find was the most work you had to do to, to get things going?
1: Um, I think the the most work would be Getting the, getting the paperwork together, mm-hmm. um, you know, confirmation of the bills and things like that. That was probably the most work I had to do. And even that wasn't that hard um, because, you know, they're sending you bills every day. So yeah. um, it really wasn't a hard process. It was, it was so easy.
0: Good. If you'd like more information or if this resonates with you, check out the website Sands and Associates It's sands-trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So, life after a consumer proposal or bankruptcy, I think this is a great topic for a segment. Because if you're wanting to get some debt help... One of the things would be, okay, what then? Like, yeah. wh- What's the long-term impact if I do a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy for sure? Yeah. I is this going to ruin my life? Yeah, right? I want to know yeah. what the impact's going to be. Not the month-to-month. When it's done, what happens then? So, cool. I'm glad we're doing this. Mm-hmm. So, first thing is, let's. can we talk about the length of each? Is Yeah, of a consumer
2: proposal and a bankruptcy. You know, first off, how you even get started is, well, you come for a few meetings. So typically with Sands and Associates, you meet us three times. So the first meeting, is an initial consultation. Uh, We come in, you know, blank sheet of paper, ready to listen to all about the situation. You hopefully bring in a bit of information about your debts, about your assets, about your income, and we review everything, answer all your questions, and we have a bit of an idea of what some good solutions are for you. Okay. At that point, you go away.
0: Customized, I might add, right? Oh, of course, It's completely based on what I have When I walk in the door. Yeah,
2: exactly. So, if someone's got, you know, $5,000 of debt, it's a different solution than someone with $50,000 or $500,000. So, um, assets and circumstances, you know, someone 80 years old has different objections than someone at 20 years old. So, absolutely, it's a customized debt, debt solution. So, the first meeting is kind of high level in general. The second meeting, which can be just a couple days later or maybe a week later if you need to get information together, that's when you bring in all of the details. So, you bring in, you know, your last year's taxes, you bring in the most recent bills, your pay stubs, nothing too extreme but just basic stuff to prove everything you've told us about your debts and your assets and then we review everything again and we say okay we looked at a bankruptcy we looked at a proposal um, here were the implications of various payments and the person typically makes a decision at that point on how to proceed We meet a third time, which is usually a couple days later. We've prepared all the legal documents and that's when the proceeding starts. So all three of those meetings can happen in the space of a week. Sometimes people spread them over a few months. We're indifferent, it's just whatever pace the client wants to move at. And really importantly, no one makes any payments until and unless they've decided to file a formal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. There's no payments for the first couple meetings. If it's just free advice, well, then you move on with a little more information than when you started. Now, once you're into the proceedings, a consumer proposal can go for a maximum of five years but typically two to three years is when most people pay off their consumer proposals. Uh, bankruptcy is often a little bit shorter. So if someone's never been in bankruptcy before, if they're low income, bankruptcy is done inside of a year. So about nine months, typically, if you're not low income, it's about a year different. So it's about 21 months in total. Neither of them are, you know, seven, 10 year type of cycles. They're generally uh, bankruptcy is done within a couple of years, a proposal, a maximum of five, but typically about two to three years.
0: Okay. So what happens then at the end, or when these when both of these things are completed. So if I if I did a consumer proposal with you mm-hmm. and I did my, what would you say, 24 to 48 months, yeah, that's sort something of the like average. Yep. So I'm in the end of 48, mm-hmm. number 48 months.
2: Yeah, so in a consumer proposal, you've got two obligations. One is to make all the payments, which you've now done, and to come for two counseling sessions, which you normally do in the first six months or so. So okay. we're going to assume that those have been wait. done as well. I no. do
0: those in the beginning. No,
2: by law, they've got to be done pretty well up front to give you all the habits to you know change things over time. Oh, excellent. Okay, yeah. that makes good sense. Exactly. So when you're done the proposal, um, the trustee reviews everything, all the payments, looks at all the claims, makes sure everything's been administered the right way, and then issues a certificate of completion or a full performance. So it's basically a legal certificate that absolves you from anything to do with these debts in the future. It says full and final settlement on everything you've done in the proposal, and you move forward with your life at that point. Um, If it's a bankruptcy, it's a little bit different um, in that there's a discharge. So when you go into bankruptcy, you're in the legal state of bankruptcy uh, and the court has to agree to remove you from that legal state of bankruptcy. So it's more severe than a proposal. In a proposal, there's no sense that you're in bankruptcy or not. You're just doing a payment arrangement. In a bankruptcy, you have to be discharged from bankruptcy. And at the end of either nine months or 21 months, if you've done everything you're supposed to do in the bankruptcy, you've given us all of your income information, you've cooperated on all the proceedings, um, the trustee signs a document called a certificate of discharge, which discharges you from bankruptcy and absolves you from all of those debts. So it's very okay. similar to a consumer proposal, but the important thing in a bankruptcy is that people could object. So in a consumer proposal, if you pay everything off, it's all good and done and you get your certificate. If it's in a bankruptcy, if someone says, you know, we think you've been fraudulent or maybe you've gotten rid of some assets and we didn't like that, they can apply to have matters heard in court. So there's a little bit more of an uncertainty. but uh, That's low single digit percentages. Quite often people just get their certificate from their trustee. The bankruptcy comes and goes pretty streamlined.
0: Okay, and in a consumer proposal, nobody's gonna come back at you because they had to agree in the first that's place. That's exactly it, yeah. So they're, they're happy, they're just yeah. happy.
2: Yeah. Happy cons- to be
0: getting some. Money. In a
2: consumer proposal, at least a majority of your debt had to say yes. Um, and if there is, you know, a minority credit that really didn't want the deal, well, unfortunately, they didn't have enough votes to get it changed. So you're right. right. They, they lose a lot of their ammunition. In a bankruptcy, a bankruptcy is kind of forced on the creditors. They don't have any right to say yes or sure. no until the end, which is when they can object to the person finishing the bankruptcy.
0: Makes sense. So I know that people get all concerned about credit scores. Mm-hmm. In a consumer proposal, do they get impacted? And in a bankruptcy do they get impacted and what kind of impact?
2: Yeah, so yes is the answer in both. So anytime you don't pay back all your debts in full with all the interest that they want, your credit takes a hit. That's the price of restructuring your debts. Now, it's not a lifelong sentence by any means, and we've often talked on this show how much smarter it is to take a short-term hit on your credit, clear off all the bad debt that you're dealing with, and then rebuild your credit with no debt. You'll be so much better off. Um, But the nuts and bolts of it are that if you did a consumer proposal, from the day you pay off the proposal, so if you pay it off in three years, the proposal is going to clear two to three years after. After that last payment, depending on the Bureau to be safe, let's say three years. Okay. So for the next three years after you paid off that proposal, if someone looks at your credit, they're going to see all of your accounts and they're going to see, oh, included in consumer proposal. Okay. Now, anything new that you do after that is going to start to show up. And the more new information you put in your credit report, usually within about a couple years after the proposal, even though it's still on your credit report, people can get mortgages, they can get car loans, they can apply for credit. So what you really do after the proposal matters a lot more than what happened before.
0: Okay. Is everything itemized in terms of uh, the the transaction date? Mm -hmm.
2: Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every account on your credit report is going to show last activity, you know, when they receive dividends, all of that stuff. Okay. And now oftentimes, we talk about this a lot, there's often inaccuracy on credit reports. So whether it's a bankruptcy or a proposal, we tell everybody three months after you're finished, get copies of your credit reports just to make sure everything's updated correctly because oftentimes there are issues there. Got it. Now, with the bankruptcy from a credit rating point of view, a bankruptcy is typically over more quickly than a consumer proposal, but its credit rating lasts longer. So a lot of people think bankruptcy takes seven years. Well, it doesn't. It takes less than one year for most people, but it's noted on your credit report for six years after you finish it. So that's okay. where kind of that seven-year myth comes from. Now, really importantly, just because it's on there for six years doesn't mean you can't get credit if you rebuild the right way. If you decide not to touch any credit until six years is gone, well then yeah, you're going to have a zero rating. It's going to be pretty tough to start from there. But in our counseling sessions, we tell you as soon as you're discharged, go out and get a secured credit card. If if you're trying to build credit again, go out and get a secured credit card. You can never go over the limit, never get into trouble. But the best credit cards every month, they're going to put a good story on your credit report. We're going to tell you to try to save money, do an RRSP loan every year at tax time. That's going to report positively on your credit. And we're also going to tell you to pay the darn little cell phone every month because that's right. the number one thing that puts negative things on your credit. So to attend to every expenditure every month and make sure just the little bills don't get missed because those can really cause you an impact.
0: Now, is it, it? We just have a minute or so left. Is should we talk about how long it takes for someone to establish new credit? I mean, mm-hmm. is that that's a variable as well?
2: Yeah, but with the right steps, um, there's a really a formula, and it's two to three years from okay. you know zero to hero, so to speak. Like to, from literally, you are in bankruptcy with no assets to you could be getting a mortgage, can be as little as two to three years, um, and that's based on when you come out of a bankruptcy, you owe nobody anything. And what creditors tend to really put a lot of weight towards is about the last two years of history. So if you come out of a bankruptcy in a proposal, you get a couple of credit cards, you have limits that are relatively low, but you keep them less than 50% utilized. So you don't go over half of your limit. Within a couple of years, you'll find that your credit rating has significantly improved.
0: And does that include credit cards as well? Oh yeah. Yeah. Credit
2: cards are your number one way to improve the rating. That's what they measure a lot of the time.
0: Okay. And car loans too. That seems to be the other thing that people sort of are, are when they're in debt, a car loan can sometimes be part of that.
2: You want to be careful because sometimes that's used to sell really high cost financing. Sometimes, you know, 30% per annum car financing to say it helps you build your credit. It's not worth that. Um, but yeah, a good car loan at a reasonable rate can help for sure.
0: If you want to find out more information, get more information, sit down with somebody, I'm going to give you a phone number for Sands & Associates. They have 17 offices in British Columbia. It's a 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030 to get that first consultation as well as to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us from Big Bad, Toronto, is Doug Hoyes. Uh, Doug is a co-founder of Hoyes, Michalis & Associates, one of Canada's largest pers- personal insolvency firms. In his 30 years as a chartered accountant and licensed insolvency trustee, he's personally helped over 10,000 folks solve their debt problems and rebuild their financial future. He's pretty passionate uh, as an advocate for ensuring that people find the right solution for debt problems. He's interviewed in all kinds of media, including this show. Thank you very much, Doug. He shares his knowledge and expertise in a lot of common uh, financial myths and mistakes. He's been on CBC, Global News, Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, Business News, and so on and so on, even Huffington Post. So he's everywhere, which is great. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Doug.
3: Great to be with you, Elaine.
0: So uh, we're going to talk about an interesting study uh, that your firm undertook all about millennials. Uh, it's called the Millennials Debt Study. And I, when I saw that this is what we were talking about, I thought, what a great idea, because um, depending on how old one how old you are, how old I am, I have a particular view of how millennials view the world. And I'm really interested to see if that's true, or if I've just bought into a stereotype. And you know, I I worry about them in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to to financial stuff and money and debt and all that.
3: Yeah, and I'm not a mind reader. So I'm not going to tell you how somebody else thinks. But what we did in this study was look at the actual data. So as you said, we're a firm of licensed insolvency trustees based here in Ontario. And so we took all the data from everybody who filed a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy with us over the last many years. We've been doing this study since 2011. And the overall study we call is it's Joe Detter, but this year we focused much more on millennials. And we define millennials as people who are, you know, roughly born between 1981 and 1996. So Sort of, you know, 22 to 37 years old, and that's kind of an arbitrary definition, but that's the one that, that we used. And we compared them to other age groups, you know, like seniors and boomers and that sort of thing. And uh, I mean, ultimately, at, at the core, we're all the same. I mean, we all want to have a good job, we all have, you know, credit card debt and things like that, but millennials are are faced with some specific challenges that older generations don't see. And I think your point about, um, and really what you were saying is, it's hard to understand what someone else is going through unless you've walked in their shoes. And so it's very easy if you're a baby, baby boomer or maybe even someone retired to say, ah, those millennials today, I mean, they're always complaining about this, that, the other thing. I mean, I got a job, I worked, I didn't have all these problems, yada, yada, yada. And okay, but let's look at some actual facts here. So the biggest problem many millennials have today is student loan debt. And that's very easy for a baby boomer or a senior to say, well, I mean, when I went to school, I got a job. I paid for my school. What's your problem here, right? Because is that, it's that not... a good impersonation I did there of, yeah, uh, of an was, old person? It
0: was, it was very good. It was very I, I good, so. Doug. But I mean, the, you're absolutely right. But the situation is so completely different. I When I went to school, I didn't have to pay multiples of thousands of dollars, depending on what I was studying, uh, per semester or per year Compared to what today's uh, students are paying? Yeah, that's exactly the point.
3: And so, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you how old I am, but I graduated from university in 1987,
0: so Holy you can do the math. Man. I know I'm, I'm not a young man.
3: <laughs> I'm not a young man. And so, when when I went to the University of Toronto, and I'm an accountant, so I took accounting courses. Uh, my tuition was about a thousand bucks a year. For all the courses, Doug. For all the courses. Yeah, not per course, (laughs) per course, for a a whole year, not just for a term, like for the whole year. Well, it's interesting, Doug,
2: because I graduated in 2002, um, and my tuition was about $5,000 for all the courses. So it went up a factor of five, but it's even worse now. (laughs)
3: Yeah, and today for a basic Bob education, you know, again taking accounting is something really easy where there's it's not very expensive. There's no lab work or anything like that, you know. So maybe it's seven thousand bucks, but then of course you've got all the the other stuff on top of it. So when I went to school, it was mathematically possible to get a summer job. Mm-hmm. Earn enough money to pay your tuition. I could get a part time job during the year to pay for my you know books and incidentals. My family helped out uh, with living expenses i didn 't have to get any debt Well today, like you said, seven thousand bucks is kind of the base number for tuition and then when you add living expenses and books and everything else on top of that it 's a lot more and if you want to take a real course like not accounting but engineering or something, mm-hmm. then you can easily be looking at sixteen or eighteen thousand dollars. Well, tell me how the math works with me getting a a minimum wage job during the summer, there's no way I can generate that kind of money. So unless my family has money or unless I qualify for scholarships, I'm getting a student loan. And as a result, we're seeing more and more people graduating with student loans, and therefore they're starting off behind where us older people started many years ago.
0: I think it's a really valid point, a super valid point. Mm -hmm. And I think that's too where millennials get into that, uh, not habit, but have that opportunity to then go to their boomer parents and uh, secure or ask for support in some way. So, you know, lots of folks are living at home still and for very good reason.
3: Yes. And debt becomes normalized. It just becomes a thing. Right. And so, you know, my father, who's now in his 80s, he, he didn't have to have much of a mortgage when he bought his first house, you know. Fifty years ago, for thirty thousand dollars or whatever it cost. Yeah. Whereas today, and I mean, you know this more in Vancouver than we know it in Toronto, and it's bad mm-hmm. here. Is you know a little tiny two hundred square foot house cost nineteen million dollars. Yeah. So there is, <laughs> and maybe my numbers are a little off.
0: <laughs> you might be I, exaggerating just I a little I think I got the gist West of Van. It. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, I, I yeah. think I got the gist of it. So, yeah. so there is no way you can possibly consider buying a starter home or a starter condo right. without a massive amount of debt. There's no way you can consider going to school without a bunch of debt. So debt is something that is just with us. That hasn't always been that way. That's the way it is now. And so if I'm used to having this kind of debt, I can't make ends meet. It's not that big a stretch then to be using credit cards, payday loans, other forms of debt to survive. And and that's where we find ourselves today.
2: And Doug, coming to your to your study here, one of the things that really surprised me was just how much this group of clients is growing as a proportion of the people that, that file for bankruptcy. Um, you know, I was looking and you, you were saying between 2011 and 2018, well, the millennial cohort, um, they increased by 22% of the overall population. There's 22% more people as millennials, um, but the share of them filing insolvencies increased by 162%. That's a massive change. Um, so this, it, it, I think you said, it's the fastest group of individuals filing insolvencies. Right now, fastest. growing yeah, it's, group.
3: A, it's the fastest growing age group, and and you're right. And part of that is okay. Well, they're now getting older, and and as you know, the the perfect age to go bankrupt or file a consumer proposal or the most common age is somewhere in your mid 40s, sort of 44, 45, 46. And and I'm sure you see the same thing, Blair, where you are. And the reason for that is I've been you know in the workforce for 20 years, so I've had time to build up debt. Maybe my kids are you know still around and I'm still supporting them. My parents maybe be still around maybe I'm supporting them. They haven't, you know, left me an inheritance or anything like that. So I'm at my peak borrowing years when I'm in my mid-40s. Well, now we're seeing that pushed back to millennials who are in their late 20s, early 30s, mid-30s, who are carrying all this student loan debt. So they then have to resort to things like credit cards and payday loans just to survive. And as a result, they are becoming a fast-growing cohort. They aren't quite as big yet as the,
2: the mid-40-year-olds, but they are
3: growing very fast and, and catching up very
2: quickly. And Doug, can you, you mentioned payday loans. Can you just talk a bit on that? Because I was really surprised. It was almost half of the respondents in your in your study of the millennials, they had at least one payday-style loan. And this is kind of, you know, it's a recent form of financing. I guess payday loans always existed, but now you've got them everywhere on every, on every corner, you know, with some pretty slick branding. So what did you learn about millennials and their use of payday loans and other high-interest loans?
3: Yeah. And I would say student loans are the biggest epidemic. Payday loans or payday style loans are the second biggest epidemic. And you're right. It's uh, almost half of our millennial clients have payday loans. And if they have one payday loan, they have more than four of them. So it's not Mm -hmm. just one. You you know, when you're eating a box of cookies, you don't just eat one. Well, it's kind of the same with with payday loans. The total that they owe is almost $4,800 on these loans. And Okay, you might think $4800 that's not that big a deal. Okay, we'll do the math. So, and I, I'm not familiar with the laws in BC, but in Ontario here the maximum they can charge on a payday loan is $15 on every 100 borrowed. That's so the same here. Yep. Hun- same same in, in yep. British Columbia. Okay, so you you borrow 15, you borrow 100 bucks, pay it back in 2 weeks, you pay back 115 and then I got to borrow 100 bucks again. If I do that 26 times during the year every 2 weeks, I've paid $390 in interest on my $100 loan. That's a 390% interest rate. So, okay, $4,800 is not a big number, but if I'm paying four times that in interest, it's not hard to get into trouble. And the other problem, as you alluded to, Blair, is that it's not just a payday loan. I'm borrowing 500 bucks and paying it back in in two weeks. The payday loan companies now have branched into installment loans Mm -hmm. and fast fast cash loans. So in Ontario now, it is possible to get an installment loan from one of these places for up to $15,000. Now, they can't charge 390% interest because there are federal usury laws that apply all across Canada. The maximum interest rate is 60% under the criminal code, so they charge 59.9%. And again, on $15,000, that's a huge number. So millennials don't have as much total debt as, uh, you know, a baby boomer, for example, but it is concentrated in these high interest forms of debt, payday loans, credit cards, things like that. So it takes less debt for they, them to get into trouble. And these payday loan places now have moved online. And guess who's really good with computers and phones and apps and things? Well, it ain't the 80-year-olds. It's the millennials. And so they are more willing to use this form of borrowing, and it's more accessible to them now because of the technology. And you combine all that, and it's a, it's a pretty scary situation.
0: So, Doug, we just have like a minute and a half left. And what I'd like to ask you is, because we know the situation now, what kind of advice would you give a millennial who's actually concerned and wants to take some action?
3: Well, I would say that, number one, you're not alone. And that's why we are talking about it today. And we've done a, a documentary. You can go on YouTube and, and see that. We've actually presented all this kind of information in that format as well on the Always Nicholas channel. The, my advice is debt problems do not go away on their own compounding of interest is great when you've got a savings account or an investment but it works the other way when you've got debt so the time to attack debt is now The beauty of it is, as a millennial, you're still young, you've still got time to recover, so now is the time to reach out to a professional, a licensed insolvency trustee who are the only professionals in Canada who are licensed to do consumer proposals, which is a way to work out an arrangement with the people you owe money to, to eliminate the debt once and for all, which is the ultimate solution.
0: Okay, excellent. And I want to, just as we're wrapping up, how can someone access your study online
3: the direct link to it would be ca, all one word, but you can also go to our main website, h o y e s dot com, and then type in bankruptcy study, Joe Detter, millennials, whatever, and you will find it that way as well.
0: Excellent. We've been talking with Doug Hoyes, who's co-founder of Hoyes Miklos and Associates, one of Canada's largest personal insolvency firms. And the reason why he knows so much about this is he's got 30 years as a chartered accountant and licensed insolvency trustee. Doug, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So, common myths and misconceptions that we have about debt. And it's, you know, historically, debt was like having debt, you know, there was a debtor's prison. It just wasn't something that was tolerated in society. It was an
2: an aberration, was to be in debt. It was not typical. No. Right?
0: And that's I think, you know, about my parents and that's sort of how the era that not that they grew up in that era, <laughs> but that got handed down, right? Yeah. And yeah.
2: And the statistics show that, you know, if you look at, you know, per capita consumer debt, it was so low until about the 70s, 80s or so. And it's, my God, it's been a hockey stick in the last 10, 15 years. Um, I don't know anybody in my personal or professional life that doesn't have a credit card. Right. You know, it just seems like it's what you need to function. You try to pay for parking. If you're on a plane, you want to buy food, you need a credit card. That's right. Um, so we've been, you know, just gently pushed into this this, you know, electronic payment type of a system. And a lot of that comes along with just normalizing this idea of, you know, having a little bit of debt isn't too bad. It's an investment, but it's really not a typical thing throughout human history, for sure.
0: And even normalizing having a lot of debt is standard. Yeah. You know, if you're buying a house or a condo or whatever, yeah, having that mortgage, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the the good
2: debt. Buy as much as you can, as quick as you can, because it's only going to go up, right? Yeah, exactly. Where have we heard that before? We'll see how it ends.
0: So you talk to lots of people who Mm -hmm. need help and guidance and advice. Uh, Let's look at some of the misunderstood facts.
2: Yeah, some of the big myths. So I think we got five of them today. You know, the top five myths that people tend to still hang on to uh, about debt. And, you know, some of them are, you know, may not apply to you, but at least I'm sure there's a couple here. that You'd be like, oh, I can see how that might apply. It might help me in a situation. Okay, so what's the first one? So the first one is that creditors can always sue you for a debt. So the idea here is that if you owe money, you're always going to owe this money. And if you don't pay it, um, you could potentially be sued at any point for the rest of your life. You've got an obligation. If you don't satisfy it, you're going to be in trouble. Um, at some point, someone could come in and, and basically make you pay by taking it to court.
0: And that's not true?
2: That is not true. Okay. Like many things in life, there is a statute of limitations for debts. And it's very misunderstood and not well known. And sometimes these are my happiest meetings with folks when I can say, hey, that debt you know, from 10 years ago that you were really worried about, there's no legal way you could ever be forced to pay it. Big sigh of relief. You mean I can never be sued? That's exactly what I'm saying. So, what the BC Limitations Act says is it sets out a two year basic limitation period. So, what that means is two years after the date a debt was incurred, two years after the date the last payment against it was made, or two years after the last written acknowledgement of the debt, the person who owes the money, if those two years pass, the limitation period kicks in, which means that debt cannot be pursued in a court of law for payment. Okay. So what this means is if someone is sitting there with, you know, let's say a big credit card bill that they know they're never going to be able to pay off in full um, and they've sat down or not sat down, they've talked to the collection agent and the collection agent said, you know, just make me some good faith payments here. You haven't paid for the last year and a half, you know, pay me $10 next month, $20 the months after, you know, I want to work with you. I know you're a good person, so on and so forth. Person might think, well, that's just great. The bank is excellent. They're working with me. Let's, let's try to move forward. 10 or $20 is not going to move the needle at all in any significant part of it, part of a debt, but what it does do is it resets that clock back on the two-year statute of limitations. So my advice to somebody is if you've got a debt and it's approaching two years since you've last made a payment on it, think long and hard about it. Whether you make a partial payment, if you know you're not going to be able to pay the debt off in full, you'd feel a lot better protected if you know the two-year statute of limitations has elapsed.
0: And what kind of thinking do you have to do in order to decide, no, it's not worth paying or it is worth paying.
2: You know, I think it'd be a case of, can you see yourself paying this debt off in the next two or three years? Okay. So, you know, reasonably, okay, I haven't paid it for a little bit, but I know I'm starting a new job next month. I know I've got a bonus coming in. I know I'm going to be able to clear this debt. Okay. Well then don't, don't worry about it. But if it's the case, you know, I don't see the runway for me clearing this debt in any appreciable uh, period of time. And I've actually missed a bunch of payments on this right now. It's approaching the two-year period. Make yourself aware that the limitations period after two years gives you extra protection, uh, which again means that you can't be sued for the debt.
0: Okay. Um, are all debts covered by that uh, limitation period?
2: No, I'm happy you mentioned that, Elaine. So not all debts. So generally unsecured consumer debts. So this is things like you know credit cards, um, lines of credit, personal loans in between individuals, things like that would be covered. Um, things like government debts, Canada Revenue Agency debts for you know taxes or for student loans, there's no statute of limitation. So if okay. you owe the government money, there's no waiting them out. Now it's also the case if a creditor has sued you, so if they've already taken you to court and they've gotten a judgment against you, the two-year limitation period doesn't apply. Okay. that's really minor. Creditors threaten to sue everybody, but they actually sue one in 10,000. So I'd be surprised that's many people's situation, but that is the case. And then the last category here, as we as we hit on sometimes, is things like child support, spousal support. Those can never be, you um, know, statute of limitations. They can be, never be reduced or eliminated through this.
0: Okay. So second myth about debt, dealing with government debts.
2: Yeah. So the myth How is that, that there's no forgiveness for government debt. And that sounds logical, right? You, you know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, if you owe the taxman money, they've got the right to, you know, hound you at the ends of the earth. There's Absolutely. no way you can ever get out from that. And I think a lot of that comes from, we get a lot of our news from the United States where that is the case. If you go into bankruptcy okay. in the US and you owe the government money, whether it's income taxes or for student loans, which is very, very concerning to me, um, you go through a bankruptcy, that debt survives out the other side. You can't get rid of it. Okay. Canada is the complete opposite. So whatever amounts are owing to the government, uh, if it's income tax, for example, it's treated the same as every other debt if you do a bankruptcy or a proposal. Now, if it's an egregious amount of income tax, if we're talking millions of dollars or, you know, more than $200,000, generally there's going to be some questions asked and investigations understanding how did it get to this this point. But if it's all, you know, just an honest but unfortunate situation, absolutely income tax debt can be discharged, which means eliminated through either a bankruptcy or a proposal.
0: And the key is there, it's got to be done with a licensed insolvency trustee. You are the only people, Yep. that can negotiate with the government.
2: Exactly. To make that change. That's right. So you've got to come through a licensed insolvency. Trustees do either of those remedies. Yes. Uh, with student loans, a little bit different. They can still be eliminated, but the government wants you to go out and try to earn income after you've graduated. So you've got to wait seven years from when you are last a student. If you do a bankruptcy or a proposal after seven years, the debt is the same as every other debt. It's eliminated.
0: Okay. All right. So government debts from business operations. Mm-hmm. You talked about that. So what's the what's the myth in connection with that? Yeah.
2: So sometimes the myth is, you know, I've incorporated a company and I did that to limit my liability. So if this company right. owes the government some money, I don't owe the government the money is because I own the own the company and I'm the director. And unfortunately, that is a myth um, that there are some liabilities. If you incorporate a company and that company has some liabilities to the government, it's not the case that all of those liabilities will die with the company if you shut the company down. So some really important ones, if you're the director of a corporation and the corporation owes money to the government for GST, for example, you as the director owe that money dollar for dollar regardless of whether the business pays it. So if the business can't pay it, you have to pay it. If the business does pay it, obviously there's no debt anymore. Right. But GST is big. Payroll remittances. So if you're paying your staff through the corporation, and you're not remitting the CPP, EI, income tax, all of that, um, dollar for dollar, the director of the corporation is on the hook for those amounts. Uh, Unpaid wages to employees. So if you promise you're going to pay your staff and the business has to shut down and not pay them, the director is on the hook for those obligations. And then the last one is just any debts where you've signed a personal guarantee. So when you put your name on the dotted line saying if the business can't pay, I agree to pay as well, well, then obviously you've contracted into that liability. So incorporating a business can be a great idea for certain situations, but it's not a catch-all that eliminates all of your personal liabilities and certainly not your government liabilities. You've got to be careful if you've got a corporation with some government debt as a director, you could have that liability for yourself.
0: Okay, so you really need to talk to somebody who knows at that point. Exactly. Can read the all the small print.
2: Yeah, and what you might decide too is, well, if I'm going to owe all this money anyway, let's keep my life more simple and just be a proprietor. And sometimes that's actually a smart decision. It's way more simple, easy and cheaper.
0: Okay, can we go to the last myth? Because yeah. I think that we've just got about a minute left Certainly. in this. So, the last common myth that you want to bring up mm-hmm. is about your, and this is a question I bet you get all the time. All the time. Spouse's debt.
2: Yeah, so I'm responsible for my spouse's debt, right? know, So I married the you know person and the person got a bunch of debt. We've got to pay that off together, right? And if I don't pay it, uh, then my spouse is going to be responsible. All of those things, people think that a debt gets shared once you become married and there's nothing could be further from the truth. So there's no change in status if you marry somebody. So if I have a credit card debt and I become married, that credit card company could never collect from my wife, no matter what. If we divorced, if we stayed together, if she's got all the assets, if I've given her a bunch of money, they can't go to my wife. They can only go to the person. Who's on basically the credit card statement? So, couples should be very careful if they've got a debt problem that one partner deals with it, that the other person doesn't transfer all the assets to pay it off in full because they don't have to do that. It's a separate obligation for each partner.
0: Really important. And of course, if you want to talk to Blair about that, that's easy to do too. Uh, If you want more details, certainly he's the guy to talk to. Sands and Associates, that's where he is. Uh, If you want more information, you can go to their website, Sands trustee.com, or better yet, give them a call. 1-800-661-3030. Get that first free consultation as well as to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.